Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. My name is Nicole Pritchett, and I'm a documentary filmmaker, a director, and a producer. So I work in commercials, TV shows, documentaries, and I write as well. And a lot of my films um, cover a wide range of topics, you know, from psychedelics to politics to harrowing stories. And I I tend to look at um, shine a light kind of into dark places. And um, a lot of the films that I that I work on are about that. Um, I have films on Netflix, on HBO, on Hulu, across the board. And, you know, I love what I do for work. And I'm really passionate about the work that I do. So becoming a mother was a concern I had at first, because I was like, wow, I'm going to be a mom. How am I going to work and pursue my passions? I didn't know what to do. And I thought, you know, I'm 33 or 32, I should freeze my eggs maybe. And so I remember going to the doctor and saying, okay, I'm going to freeze my eggs. And I remember when I went to the doctor, I'm a really healthy person. I practice martial arts. I am very active. I surf. Um, You know, I've always been in good health standing. I eat pretty healthy. Um, And I thought, you know, no problem. I'm going to go, I'm going to freeze my eggs. Some of my other girlfriends had done it before. And I remember going into the office and the doctor was like, oh, doesn't look good. And, you know, when you go to freeze your eggs, they ask you to come in on your period, like the first or the second day of your period. And they like, you know, stick this magic wand up there. They start like looking around and she's like, you really don't have any eggs. Ah, It's like you're really low egg count. I don't think you're, you know, it's going to be a struggle for you to get pregnant. Likely you should absolutely freeze your eggs. You are a perfect candidate for freezing your eggs, but I can't guarantee we're going to get a lot because you have such few eggs. And I remember being shocked. This wasn't something that it was like, Hey, you know, we've got some not so great news or it was just, she just vomited the information on me as I'm there. And I remember feeling paralyzed and shocked and just being like, Oh, wait, what? Um, And I remember leaving there and I couldn't even talk. I was so in shock. It it wasn't that I wanted to become a mother the next day, but I was shocked. And she said, look, look, let us draw some blood. We'll do some blood work. And when those results come back, you know, we can either confirm what we're seeing. So I said, okay, no problem. And, you know, I went back with my partner and I was telling him what they told me and I was upset. And I remember calling my mom and just being crying on the phone to my mom and my sister and just being like, wow, maybe I won't ever have kids. And, and it was, it was really heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. And so, you know, that night with my partner, like, or four days later, they called me back and they, and they're like, listen, the blood work confirms what we saw. And, you know, we think you should consider freezing your eggs and gives me the whole spiel and the thousands of dollars that it's going to cost. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of money also like for this because she's now telling me I should probably try freezing embryos, not just eggs. And I remember it was like the last day of my period. And that part, that evening um, I had sex with my partner thinking, you know, I'm not getting pregnant. And, and little did I know I got pregnant that night, the last day of my period with no, with no, like with this person who I'd just been in the, in, in the office telling me I was going to not get pregnant. And I didn't think I was going to get pregnant either. Um, neither did he, but a month later 
I was feeling weird and I was pregnant. And I was like, what? I, I, I called the doctor and I was like, um, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I'm the last day of my period. What happened here? And that was my first kind of glimpse into, wait a second, was she just trying to sell me on freezing my eggs or freezing an embryo or is this what she's taught that little eggs always mean you can't get pregnant? I mean, what was the messaging that she was telling me? And it was kind of this, the, sh the snow globe was shaken. And I was like, this is a really respected woman in Los Angeles. And I have friends that have gone to her who are very smart women and frozen their eggs with her. And it was the first kind of like blow, blow everything open. And I'm like, okay, well now I'm pregnant and now I don't even trust this doctor situation. And that's not someone I want to go to for my future experiences. And it kind of opened a door where I just started to read as much as possible. I wasn't expecting to get pregnant. I thought maybe in a couple years it would be something I would do. So I just started reading as much as I could, finding Instagram pages like yours and other people's and just getting all of the knowledge. And I was I thought, like most people, like, well, you have birth in a hospital, and that's what you do. I mean, there's that's just that's how everybody does it. I mean, I've never heard of anything outside of that. And that was something initially I considered, but just a little bit of reading, I started to read about all of these C-sections and the rise in C-section rates. I mean, since 2000 to 2015, they've doubled in the United States alone, I think, is, is the stat that I read. And I remember just being like, I don't want that. I, I don't, I don't want that for my child or for me. And the more I read, the more I was concerned for the state of our society, the more I was like, holy hell, everybody's doing these births, but this is maybe not even the right or natural thing. And I started to learn about how most, most C-sections are medically induced, which I had no idea. You know, we think people, people are telling you, you know, don't, don't have a home birth or don't, you know, you need to do it in a hospital because what if you need a C-section? What if there's an emergency? And I just started to read that, you know, most of these C-sections are medically induced. What happens is you have nausea. They give you something for nausea. Oh, you have, you're throwing up. They give you a little something for this. Before you know it, in the most sacred time of, or union of your life, as your baby is coming to this world, you're filled with medicine that is then impacting your baby's heart rate. Then the heart rate goes down. So now we need to do a C-section. But if you hadn't taken those medicines that they gave you and told you are safe to take, you wouldn't even have the C-section. So I started to learn things like this. And I was like, I don't, I don't get this. this. This doesn't make sense. Like It doesn't make sense. And, and so over time, I decided that I was going to have, um, I wanted to have a water birth. I thought that sounds perfect. And I wanted to, you know, have a home birth. And I was in Miami at the time, which is where my family lives and where I was raised. And everybody, I didn't know anyone. I didn't have one friend that had had a home birth. And everybody was like, you can, you cannot do that. You know, the hospitals are far away from your house in Miami. And that's, I live in, my, my home in Miami is in Key Biscayne. And it's like a little island off of Miami. And they're like, you know, to get to the hospital, just to leave the island takes like 12 minutes. Like you'll never, you'll never make it if something goes wrong. And, and I was really kind of society was hitting me hard with messaging of what I needed to do. And the messaging was, you need to go to a hospital and that's your only option. And if you want to, if you want to have a healthy baby and if you want your baby to be alive, you need to be in a hospital. And it was really hard for me and my partner, but we both decided that the hospital setting was not right. You know, I, I just felt like birth is a sacred ceremony. It's a rites of passage. And I wanted to do it the most natural way for my baby and for me. And I didn't want to be hooked up to machines and I didn't want to medicalize something that is the most natural process ever. And it didn't feel right. And so I settled on a birthing center because I still was getting this messaging that it was so dangerous. And I found a birth center that was far from my home, but close to a hospital within five minutes of a, of a you know, a respectable hospital here in Miami. And that was kind of how I did a middle line, right? Of like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of making a choice for myself and my, and my son, but I'm also 
got the echo of society in the back of my mind. And that pressure is heavy, you know, and that's what I've been taught my whole life and told my whole life and seen my whole life. So, you know, when you're trying to stand up to something that is the only way, you know, and everyone around you is also encouraging you to do that people you love and respect. It's really hard to stand up and say like, no, I'm not going to do it that way. So I, I settled for this in between and my labor was not a walk in the park. You know, it was 27 hours. It started on New Year's Eve and, and it, it, it was a long, grueling process. I was throwing up all day. I, you know, apparently with pain, I throw up. That's my, that's my move. And um, it, it, it just, it was hard. It was really hard. And I got to the birth center and, you know, we can talk about like the, the details of what happened there. And, um, but I ended up having a healthy, perfect son. And I went home that day to my house and I never was in a hospital and there was a beautiful natural process there. So when I got pregnant again and I knew I wanted to have another son, um, my, I have a two-year-old now and a four-month-old. They're about 20 months apart. I got pregnant when my son um, was like 11 months old. I knew I wanted to have a home birth. I was like, I want to do this. But because my first birth was so intense and the labor was intense and it was painful and it was hard and it was challenging and um, everybody around me was like, you really should go to a hospital this time. Remember how hard that was? That was, my mom referred to it as barbaric. That's what she would tell people. And yeah, and 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 it was just this thing of like, it was just so intense. And, and it was, it was hard. It was hard, but it was beautiful. And when I look back at it, I'm like, it was a beautiful thing. And so I, I decided the second time around I was going to do a home birth. And it was really hard for me to decide. In fact, I was in Los Angeles and I started going to this really prominent doctor in the beginning. His name's Dr. Crane and he is, you know, I think he delivered one of Beyonce's baby and a Kim Kardashian baby. And like, he's, you know, this well-respected doctor and he's a sweetheart, you know, he's love bugs and he loves babies. You go to his office and he loves to look at the baby and he's very friendly and he's this old man now because he's been doing it for 120 years and he's great. And I was there, I was like, okay, I'm figuring out where am I going to give birth? How am I going to do it? And I didn't want to tell him that I wanted a home birth, but I hadn't found how I was going to do a home birth or what I was going to do. So Again, I was kind of back in this medical model as I was figuring it out. And also, again, getting the pressure from everyone, like this time you really need to go to a hospital because last time you were throwing up and you were really low in fluids and you needed fluids. And, and it was just this kind of messaging all over again, right? Compounding. And it took a lot of work. In fact, I had to work with my therapist. I had a therapist that I started with just so I could work through it to be like, no, I want to do this at home. And I want to do this the natural way. And I want to do this in my home. And what ended up happening was I remember reading a bunch of books and your Instagram and seeing it. And I, I called my mom and I said, listen, I want to have a home birth. And that's what I want to do. But I want your support. And I want you to be there. And in order for you to be there, I need you to completely support this decision, not just yeah, yeah, I support it. I need to know that you have faith in me and you have faith that this is going to go well. And if you don't, I can't have you in the room. And I remember like it was a very moving moment because that moment my mom was like, of course, I want to be there. And yes, if, if you want this and this is what you want to do, I know it's going to go well and I know you're going to have a healthy baby. And it was a very you know, special moment for me because I think she saw like, either you're not going to be there or you're going to be on my team. And, and it was kind of like support. And when I had her support, it made a world of a difference, but there's a lot of people that don't have the support of their partner or of their parents or of their close friends that have to make this choice. I mean, one of my closest friends is a nurse and a two of them. And they both were like, you make me so nervous doing this. I'm so worried for you. You know, and that's not really the messaging you want to hear. And I know they love me. You know, I know they care about me, but they're also programmed and they're even more programmed because they're within the system of the system, you know? So, so it's hard to get away from that type of messaging and programming. And over time, you know, I, I made the decision, but what I, you know, 
what I found in Los Angeles was actually this really cool doctor who's a medical doctor who does births in hospitals. And, and kind of was like, this isn't right. I shouldn't be doing these inside of hospitals. This is not the right place for this. Women know what to do. Women know their bodies know what to do. So she moved outside of the hospital and now she just shows up as support. She just kind of is there with the midwives and the midwives do their things and she's there in, in case you need her. And she's just this really amazing woman who, who encourages everyone to challenge the medical model of healing. And, you know, she, I had her in the room and I had a midwife and, and um, my partner and my family was in the room. Actually, my mom was there. My sister was there. Even my brother and my dad were sitting somewhere in the back of the room and my partner and, um, and my son too. He came, he came at the end um, once my son was, was uh, born, but it was one of the most powerful things to give birth at my house. And one of the things that I really realized is like, you can trust birth so much as you can surrender to it. And this time around, I was going to surrender to it. I was going to surrender to whatever happened. And I did. And my birth was three and a half hours of labor. And it was beautiful and it was smooth and it was hard and it was challenging. And it was a ceremony. It was a absolute ceremony in my living room. And it was the most natural thing. And it was so much easier than the first time around. And I know the second time can be easier, but also mentally, I was supported in a different way. I had a different level of, of confidence. I surrendered to the process. I trusted the process more. And the more I trusted, the better it felt and the better I was in those moments. And it was an incredible experience. And now I have two really healthy boys. And, and it breaks my heart when I hear about people thinking that the hospital is the only way. It really does because birth is about choice. This is a choice. This is about our autonomy over our bodies, over who we are, about our relationship with our children, our relationships with ourselves. And life is a series of choices, choices that we make every single day. And these small little choices add up to the totality of our life and to our destiny, where we go, where we live, who we become. And so many of us don't realize we have a choice and the choice is outside of the system. I remember, you know, so much of who we are as women is suppressed. You know, I, I heard this, I, I think it was Gabor Mate talking and he, you know, in his book and he tells a story of like, imagine a baby, a gorilla giving birth and you trying to take away her baby right after the baby's given birth and the the, the gorilla re would respond with this maternal like ferocious you know energy where you'd really see the protective maternal gene come through and and we suppressed our instincts we've suppressed our instincts so much as women that we don't even know that it's okay or not okay that they take our baby away from us right after they're born. We don't even realize that. And it's the suppression of women in general. And it's been so beaten out of us that, that we allow these things to happen. We allow it. We say, okay, here, you know, okay, we oblige. Even though deep down, it's like, that doesn't feel right. I don't want my baby there. I don't want that. Ah, oh, Okay. Oh, okay, you're a doctor. You know, we, we, we've created this vision of society and, and doctors as, as gods and the medical model of healing as gods. And listen, does it work damn well in triage? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our Western model is powerful and it can help in, in emergency situations. But for something as natural and normal as birth, it's not it. It's not the, it, it, it doesn't support women. We don't support women. We've medicalized birth. We've industrialized birth. We say to women, even though our bodies grow the child, give it a heart, lungs, it bones, every little bit, it's hair. I mean, our bodies do that. There is no medical intervention. Ain't no doctor able to do what a woman's body does. You know, we do it all by ourselves. Every single woman's body, we do it. And yet... We're in this place where we tell a woman, you're like a ticking bomb. 
when you give birth, anything can go wrong. In fact, your body is bound to fail. We can't trust your body. You know what we can trust? We can trust technology. We can, tr we can trust the doctors. I'm like the doctor didn't grow this baby. The doctor did nothing to do that. Our bodies know what to do. And it's, and it's part of evolution. It's part of intrinsically who we are. It's part of our authenticity as women, if with our bodies, but we're told not to trust it, not to trust birth yet our body just screw this baby. So like the evidence is contrary to what you're saying, but in society we have this elevation and platform of doctors that we think, no, 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 they know the way. And it's so sad because it's not true. It's just not true. Yeah. Your story really highlights the programming we all get from the society that you thought, okay, um, if I want kids later in my 30s, I have to freeze my eggs. There was no other way for you, right? You watched your friends do it. That's just what you do if you are a career woman. But because of that freezing egg journey and the heartbreak from it, it really, like you said, shattered your snow globe. It woke you up from the matrix that you were living in. And like, what? That is so perfect. Then you're like, oh my gosh, I have been programmed and living on autopilot with this brainwashing. What? What's actually true? And then you read, you found women's stories. You woke up from the brainwashing and that's why you know who you are now. You now have this like authenticity with yourself well, I mean, so much of what you do and, and the things that you say, like, you know, I, I remember, you know, you even saying like, it's birth is part of life, but it's also part of death. And we're scared. We're all scared of that cycle. And, and we're scared of these things, but we're taught to be scared. We're told to be scared. We're not intrinsically fearful of these processes. And that breaks my heart because I just think it's like, we forget kind of who we are. And birthing itself expresses the almost agenda, whether it's hidden or overt agenda of society and the values of a culture, right? So who yields the power, you know, who's in control, who's, who's powerful and, and that who gets to exercise control over our bodies, our own bodies or other people's bodies. And when we go through this natural process, we're literally told the opposite, we're told that technological care is better. We're told all of these things. And, and, it, and, it, and it doesn't end. It doesn't end when we become moms. In fact, it's reinforced again. So not only are we taught that, like we're constantly being reinforced this message of like fear and, and concern. And it's really hard. It's the fish and water, right? It's really hard to know what's true and what's not true. And even realize we have a choice when we're like a fish swimming in water. Like you ask the fish, what's water? And the fish is like, what do you mean? Like that's all the fish knows. And it's like, I think there's another quote that says something like, you're going to think a fish is really stupid if you ask it to climb a tree. And sometimes we do that to ourselves in society, right? We set up these like not normal for who we are as humans, for our bodies, for our authenticity, for how our instincts are situations. And then we feel insecure and stupid as mothers or if we want to make alternative choices. But we're setting – the stage is just foreign and, and fraudulent in a lot of ways. But we don't even realize that. I mean, I didn't realize that. And I'm still uncovering the ways in which as a mother I'm being programmed. As a daughter I was programmed. The ways my mother was programmed. And the messaging is hard and it comes through absolutely every channel. It comes through our social media. It comes through the books we read. It comes through our friends and the people we love and trust because we're all programmed. I, I'm finding a lot of work and a lot of courage to like break out of it. And when I say work, like I, I, I don't mean to say that as though it's again to sound another thing intimidating and another thing that you got to put on top of a mom to like do and pressure. I think it's a lot more about like undressing and returning to our authenticity and trusting and listening to our bodies. I mean, if our bodies know how to grow humans, our bodies know a lot more, you know, than we, than we let on. And that's been my journey, trying to listen more to my body and what it's telling me in situations. And 
it extends like to everything. Like you're, you're automatically told about uh, right away vaccinating your children. And I'm not trying to have a conversation about like whether or not you should vaccinate or not vaccinate or, you know, my belief is an autonomy of your body. So let the mothers choose, choose and listen to yourself and then make choices. All of us make informed choices um, about everything. And, and what if our body and who we, we are as women and in the birthing process, you know, what if the, the medical profession is just there as attendance just to help us if we need it in situations of deep emergency, you know, early birth. I have, I have two girlfriends that both had their babies premature, three or four months premature. Their babies would not have survived without medical intervention. And those mothers that have been through challenging situations like that, their, their courage, their strength, I mean, they're incredible. But both of them were faced with cultural programming of, well, if your baby's not home, you should return back to work now. And it's heartbreaking. I find it heartbreaking. I find it heartbreaking that we've set up a society where I'm seen as not a great worker anymore or not as valuable to society because I'm a mom in some ways. I worked on this show. It was called Man Enough. It's a podcast with Justin Baldoni. We had like really cool guests on there. And I was like a writer for the show. And um, I remember we did an episode and Justin's wife came on. She's a really freaking smart cookie. And she said, you know, the stats show that the most desirable person to hire is a, is a father because he's seen as responsible. He's got a family. He's got to take care of things, followed by a single male, followed by a single woman, followed by a mother. She's kind of looked at as like not trustworthy and not reliable and all of these things. And I was like, damn, that's sad. And for someone who loves what she does, and I do, I love what I do. I'm passionate about telling stories. I'm passionate now about challenging our cultural narrative and sharing those stories. I remember thinking, oh, this is sad. And I remember having a call with someone and it was a a work call. And it's almost like, oh, you're a mom now. Like, you're not going to be able to like contribute like the way we need. And I'm like, wow, you're really going to shun my contributions, which are many because I'm a mother, because I've changed. And that was heartbreaking for me. I mean, we just set up a society. We don't have a society that, that functions, protects and serves the mother. And it's bizarre to me. I mean, like, I don't know. Why do you think this is? Because I'm genuinely curious of why we're like this, because we're all here because we have a mother. Anybody here has a mother, right? You had a mother. Now, whether or not she was a great mother or not, you know, I think a lot of mothers do what they can in their best if they're following their instinct, you know, if they can be who they are. But how is it that we're like this? What comes to my mind is mothers are discarded by society. I think there's a lot of perspectives, but what's coming through right now in this moment is that mothers are discarded by the society kind of because they're like used goods and maidens that are untouched by like childbirth and children are what's revered, what's revered. And it's this reverence for the young, sexy female because they, they benefit men more. I don't know why, but it's just this cultural programming. I don't know why, but then once a mother, a woman becomes a mother, she's discarded. She's cast aside as if she has no worth anymore. And what, what society doesn't know that is that, if a mother really shows up to motherhood, she is reborn, a new woman. She has the capacity to be a new version of herself that is more trusting, more authentic, just so much more amazing. And I think that's what your story is because as as a maiden, you were very programmed. You were like living on autopilot. And now as a mother of two, you know who you are. And now you are more powerful because you know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there is an intrinsic power that comes with it. And I think you're right. You're not told that that can exist and you're not told that that's there for you to find either or just step into. And so often then we still kind of like shun mothers and, and it's, and it's over and over again. And even the best intentioned people. I mean, I remember on my film sets, you know, me and my partner, she's an amazing woman. She's a she's a queer Latina woman. And she 
she and me and her would always be like, let's hire more women. We need more women on our sets. These are male dominated places and film and creativity flows really well through a female. So like, let's bring that energy. Let's have more of that energy. And what I didn't realize was that I was saying that, but what I was really saying was like, no, let's bring more women without children because subconsciously I was even programmed. I don't, I didn't even realize it, but if you had children, you know, you're just kind of seen as like unreliable and, and in fact, what I've realized now in becoming a mom is that, whoa, I'm way more efficient. I was way more efficient than I used to be. I do things and half the time I used to do them in because I have to now, right? So when the pressure is on, of like, I find myself to be more efficient and not productive in terms of like societally pr- productive, but more in tune, more in tune than I've ever been. You know, I was someone that could like, you know, would step into this kind of like warrior mindset of like, get shit done. You know, you got to do it, show up on set and film and kind of this tough energy. And, and now I'm like, oh, wow. Motherhood is showing me that there's a way of doing things that is very distinct and different from the way I was told I needed to do things or things needed to be done. And of course, that's all just the male masculine kind of patriarchy coming in. And I don't use this word loosely, like it is a real patriarchy and it is work now to teach my boys who are equally going to be as programmed by society, which is breaks my heart. You know, men aren't supposed to cry. You're not supposed to be sensitive. You know, these are things that we, we will talk about now, but it doesn't mean that we're teaching them differently. It doesn't mean that we're teaching boys differently and they're equally as programmed. And we need to raise men or boys that will, that, that understand the feminine journey, that respect that and don't shun it and expect you to be the way they are. There's so many things that are just do not serve who we are authentically as people. And, and I don't know from your experience, like how do you think people step out of that kind of like caged reality? I think it's, experiences where you get pummeled, like being heartbroken, going into a freezing egg meeting and getting testing and they crushed you, they pummeled you. But what they didn't know is that it also awoke you. And it's like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And that's what 2020 did for a lot of people. 2020 woke up massive, massive programming. Thank you, 2020. It was a shakeup to wake up. Yeah, I love that. A shake up to wake up a hundred percent. And and it's and it still is. Like it it still very much is, you know. And oh God, recently I was talking with my friend and um even just the dynamic and the pressure that is put on mothers and the expectation of mothers is you know, she has her son who thank God she just was able to bring home from the NICU after 80 days and He's the cutest little teeny weeny little guy. And um, she brought him home. And the programming is so heavy on her too. You know, especially when it even comes to something like breastfeeding. What to do, what not to do. You know, what's best for your baby. Does she need to give her baby formula because he's small and the milk won't sustain, the natural milk won't sustain. I mean, these are real things of indoctrination that are coming from the hospital. The hospital is telling things. I remember she put in our group chat something of like, oh, the doctor recommended this. What do you guys know? What do you guys think about this? You know, it's something as simple as an example. Um, You know, the the doctors will like encourage you to like pull down the boy's penises if if they're not circumcised, you know, to make sure it doesn't close. And, and, um, and she's like, and it's all red and, and it, he's super uncomfortable. And the doctor told me to do that. And I was like, it's so interesting. Cause I've been to like six different doctors. And I was like, the first doctor also told me to do that. They told me to do that. And then my journey is I've met more people. Everyone's like, don't do that. Don't do that. It's not right to do that. There is this like, it, it, but a doctor will tell you that. And you think, well, the doctor knows what they're doing. The doctor is male. He's never even had a kid. You know, but we trust certain people. We we think that they know what is right and that we don't. And you've got to be your biggest advocate. You've got to be your biggest advocate. 
that conversation when you just said, it's making me realize that that programming for me stems from childhood. And I think it is for everyone where in, in childhood, we have our parents and our teachers and our ministers and our principals and our grandparents saying, basically, you can't trust your impulses. You can't trust your creativity. You can't trust anything as a child because basically you get in trouble with any impulse you have. You're, you're shamed. You have time out. You're yelled at. If you just want to express yourself with your voice or with your body, you know, you're, you're flailing around. Stop touching your brother's. Any impulse we have as children, we're put in timeout, shamed, yelled at. And so this is why I love Gabor Mate, basically, is, and he's not new at bringing this messaging. I think he just has this platform and he is dispelling it wide and far, thank God, because he's bringing this attention to when we're children, our authenticity is silenced. And when we are born as children, we are purely authentic, unconditional loving, unconditionally forgiving. And that slowly gets silenced and we slowly get programmed. And so as a child, if our parents always know best and and the minister always knows best and the teacher always knows best and we're everything we do is bad. Everything we do is bad. It's either we are good or bad. And that's why we have this programming as adults that we cannot do the bad thing. You know, you and your struggle with home birth, birth center, hospital, it's like, I can't be a bad person. I can't make the bad choice. This programming is so deep in us. I cannot be bad. I cannot do the bad choice. And it's from our programming as as children. So our whole childhood, our parents and our teachers not purposely, but just because they're programmed. They're on autopilot, silencing a child's authenticity. And we cut ourselves off from our inner impulse, instinct, authenticity, knowing, intuition, whatever you want to call it. We cut ourselves off from it because it's so unsafe. We get in trouble. We get shamed. Being our authentic self as a child brings on these feelings of shame from adults. So then we learn, oh my gosh, my authenticity is so unsafe. And we are programmed that way. So when we are teenagers and young adults and then full adults in the world, we are like robots on autopilot, living from this programmed space, completely cut off from our inner mammalian instinct most of the time and our authenticity, our true soul essence. And that's why we have mothers that are putting their babies in cribs across the house and their heart aches and they're like, oh, this doesn't feel good, but I have to, but I have to. And they silence that inner voice, that inner intuition because as a child, we were told over and over and we were shown that when we follow that impulse, that that instinct, what we know is right, shame comes. And with the baby in the crib and the sleep training whole conversation, it's this, I can't do the bad choice if my baby dies. And the shame, the shame of the baby dying. It's just all logic. It's all the societal conditioning of do the good choice, be the good person even though your intuition is telling you otherwise. It's such a deep conversation. Yeah. I mean, you, you said it perfectly. It's, it's exactly what it is. I mean, the the sleeping situation is something also. So I co-sleep with my babies, both of them. And I remember I was at a dinner with one of my, with a group of girlfriends, Um, not close friends. One of them was a close friend and really her friend group. And it was like 12 women, I think maybe 10 of them had kids and it, it came up and it was like, yeah, I sleep with them and nobody else did. And everyone looked at me like, what? You sleep with your kids? And one of them was like, oh, I would never sleep if they had to sleep in the room with me. And another one of them was like, that's so dangerous. And another one was just like, and they did it. They were trying to do it in not overtly like rude ways, but 
I remember feeling very confident in my in my decision to to, to co sleep and just being like, mm-hmm, yes, okay, that's where you were trained that this is bad. That's where you were trained. That's where you were doing. But putting these creatures that have just come to this world to sleep alone, like human contact, I mean, it's just so foreign. And it's foreign to how we've we've evolved. It's foreign to who we are as as people. And listen, people make their choices. And I and I don't mean to judge people. And in fact, I don't like to even you're gonna do what you do, and I'm not gonna tell you it's wrong, and I'm not gonna try to convince you otherwise. But I do think we should be informed. I do think we should be informed in the ways in which we've been programmed. Yeah, the way I handle that, if I have a friend saying, or an acquaintance saying, oh, it breaks my heart when I put them down, I just remind them of their choice, of their choice. You don't, you don't have to. You don't have to put them in the crib. You can have them in your room. You know, all of it is a choice. And it's just, it's just reminding them that they have choice. And then it's like, oh, if it doesn't feel right to you, you can do whatever you want. It's your baby. And sometimes I don't, I don't really go far with it. I just try to remind them of their autonomy, their sovereign choice as a mother. And also like a little tidbit on co-sleeping that people are so uneducated, right? Like if you don't have people in your life co-sleeping and, and showing you the magic and the n- normalization of your baby, only knowing your heartbeat and your in your sound and your smell, and then putting them right next to your breast as you sleep so that they still feel, feel your heartbeat, that's their home. That's what they, it's all they need. That's all they need. Their home next to your heartbeat because they were next to your heartbeat in the womb. I, I tried to say a little tidbit on co-sleeping like the most dangerous, dangerous thing with co-sleeping is if you're not sober. Fatalities of babies happen the most when a parent is not sober. And that includes, my friend reminded me of this, and that includes prescription meds. So really, if all these Americans, I'm speaking to the American culture because I'm American, if all these Americans are on prescription meds, which which many people are, yeah, it's probably not safe for you to co-sleep with your baby. And if you're taking a weed gummy every night, it's probably not that safe because you're um, incapacitated in some way. And so people just don't know like this basic logic, basic common sense of if you're sober, your baby close to you is the safest thing. But if you're not sober, you know, maybe rethink that. I love that you said that about pharma. Like, yes, most of us are on on some type of pharma medication as well. And that is a whole other bag of of messaging and programming and and your body is not good and cannot sort itself out again and do not trust your body. So take this and this and this. And then what happens, the side effects from this and this and this cause sexual dysfunction and, and a plethora of other problems that you have. So now you've got other problems. So now you need to take, and it's a, it's a vicious cycle of, of, of harming ourselves that starts from a place of like, you can't trust your body. And that's not true. That's really, it, it extends to all of us. Women get it and it goes to men. Yeah, just the simple fact that most women have like this six-week checkup after a birth and they're told to get to put on hormonal birth control. Well, if you're going to ingest hormones when you're breastfeeding, that can really F with your breast milk. You're you're ingesting foreign hormones. And so – and then the, the big pharma meds that are in birth, Pitocin, Fentanyl, Cytotec, all of these medications – have long list of side effects, adverse effects like low APGAR st- score in babies, um, breathing issues in babies. Research the drug inserts. If a birth turned into emergency, what big pharma meds were in the body of that mother and then that baby? And same with breastfeeding. Yeah. Same with breastfeeding. Yeah, it's crazy. Recently, um, I got what I thought was a stomach flu. You know, my son is two, so he's playing at the park, and I thought he brought something home, a gift uh, of another little boogie. And um, I thought I had the stomach flu, and I ended up in the hospital, and it turns out I had E. coli poisoning. And the doctor, when, you know, it had been four days, and by the time I went to the hospital, I was basically at the end of it um, because I was just so dehydrated, 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 and... 
I went to the hospital and then the next day they prescribed me these antibiotics and I went to, I went to go pick them up from the CVS and the woman's like, listen, these are really intense. If you're breastfeeding, you cannot breastfeed while you're on them and a couple days afterwards. And I remember calling the doctor and him being like, listen, you really can't breastfeed. Don't, you know, with these, with these antibiotics. And I remember having them in my bag and this was just like a week ago. And I was like, these antibiotics don't sound good for me. Like I just went through E. coli poisoning. I'm kind of at the tail end of it. My body's basically fought it off. I think I'm getting better. I'm not going to take this antibiotic and who knows the long-term effects of for my baby. And if I can't breastfeed my baby who's four months who I'm breastfeeding, I'm not going to take it. And I, I literally, you know, and I remember my mom being like, you're not going to take the antibiotic. And I was like, listen, this is the logic. And she was like, yeah, I get that. And I was like, it doesn't make sense to take this antibiotic. When my body, when naturally your body fights off E. coli and naturally you get better. But the doctor still was like, oh, we'll take this anyway. And it was another example of like, you know, I'm not saying if I had been on day one of what I was feeling, maybe I would have been in a different situation, but I was on day four and my body was basically clearing it at that point. And I didn't take the antibiotic. But again, it's another thing of like, take this for your solution. There's something else you said that I, I do want to bring up. And it's this idea, you know, I, I took my kid to um, the science museum and we were, um, his name's Liam and Liam was looking at it and there was these sharks coming by and like big turtles. And he was out loud, like, whoa, like yelling out loud, like amazed at like the sea life. And people around me were like looking at him, like, you gotta tell this guy to shh shut up. You know, he's like way too loud. His excitement, his joy is way too, way too vivacious. And I remember at one point being like, Oh, they're looking at me like Liam, like tone it down. Like, wow. But like, and then I was like, wait, no, 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 no. If you're this excited and it's bringing out this level of joy, enjoy yourself. But what we're also taught as kids is like to contain even our happiness. And we grew up to become adults that are not fully comfortable, fully being happy or expressing our happiness, or we can't figure out why we're not happy. And it's because we were told like not really to express it. And it starts at that age. It starts young. He's two. Like it starts so young and, and it's catching myself, catching myself where I feel the eyes of society on me. I feel them telling me how I should behave and then doing something else. And it's not always easy, but after the fact, I'm like, yeah, you run around and be happy because I'm not going to suppress your happiness. I don't want my happiness suppressed anymore. I was shunned down. You know, curiosity is like, is amazing. Curiosity can, can, can lead us. I believe curiosity leads us to our, to our purposes, what we should be, what we can do in life. If we follow our curiosity, but we just beat that out of kids, you know, sit in these kind of classrooms and behave a certain way and you know, it came from this industrial age of thinking that's how our classrooms are set up, the assembly line, our kids in the lines, like, you know, all of that is, is how we're taught to be. So we just suppress curiosity and curiosity, I think is one of the most powerful characteristics or tools that we have as human beings. And it's just beaten down, beaten down, suppressed, suppressed, just like our innate instincts are suppressed as mothers. And so, so it's not that someone is beating us physically. It's not that we're being chained and told we have to do it. We're not being scolded. We're permitting these things to happen. We are willingly obliging and saying yes, because we've been so suppressed by small little choices every day. And it's really heartbreaking. And I think it's time we need to change that. Yeah, it's all emotional based, all nervous system based because your son is ex exhilarated and exuberant in his joy and that's too much for other people. And so it has to be silenced because it's too much for other people. That is emotional based. We're programmed by our emotions, right? We feel so much joy. We're exuberant in joy like your son, you know, at the zoo or aquarium or whatever. And 
society wants you to shame him or quiet him, quiet him because he's too much. And a lot of us get this programming that we're too much, we're too loud, we're too, too, too. And so we're silenced and we become numb to everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story. I'll end it. There's like, have you ever heard this by, I believe, Portia Nelson is kind of this autobiography in five chapters. And it basically says, I walk down a street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. It's my fault. It takes forever for me to find my way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it's my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Then the fourth chapter. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. And then the last chapter is chapter five. I walk down another street. And I really think this is what life is about, right? We are going to fumble and we're going to fall and we're going to make the same mistakes over again. And we're going to know eventually something isn't right for us or the way society is programming us or telling us we're going to fall into that hole on that sidewalk many times. And eventually we're going to get the courage or the strength or the wisdom to say, I'm going to do it differently completely, but it doesn't happen overnight. And it's a process. And I think what I remind myself of is to trust the process and I'm not going to get it right every time, but I'm going to keep observing and eventually walking down different streets. And that's kind of what I find motherhood to be like, returning to that natural instinct, trusting who I am and knowing that it's not going to be a perfect journey, but eventually I'll walk down a different street. <laughs>